so many organizations, so many leaders focus on what's the number, what's the Salesforce updates, and all of that is great. But if your people are not waking up inspired, if their dreams are not cultivated so that they can understand how the company's mission can be linked with their dreams, well, then you've got people who are coming to a job and clocking in versus waking up inspired and wanting to do the hard work to help your company succeed. It's a very different place to operate. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they've learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there, you are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, my guest is Jamie Conselman. She's the VP of Global Strategic Sales at Unisys. Through her career, she has been a, a deal maker, driving over $3 billion in sales whilst at Atos, and she specializes in leading cross-functional teams to close complex deals. Jamie, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, same here, Lee. Super excited to dive in with you. Thank you for having me. First things first, I would love to, I had a really enjoyable time actually looking through your, your LinkedIn. Um, but for anyone listening that has not come across you before, uh, could you give a bit of a background on your story and, and how you've got to where you are today? Sure, happy to. My start in sales is probably non-traditional. You can think about it this way. If there's a job in sales or customer service, I've probably had it twice, right? So I've done everything <laughs> from being a bartender and a beer tub girl in college to a casino host, a financial analyst, a marketing manager who was tasked with selling sponsorships um, for the Las, Game, Las Vegas casinos and eventually enterprise sales within IT services. But was, what was a secret until really this summer was where I, the first job that I credit was giving me that foundation of learning how to talk to customers, learning how to go through the sales cycle and actually close business because I was an adult entertainer. So it was sort of this um, perfect training ground for learning how to prospect, right? The conversations that I learned to have night after night after night really emboldened me and ingrained in me just how to talk to customers. And that was a skill set, just talking to people in general that I've kind of missed out on in my adolescent years. And so while that part of my career journey was very non-traditional, I am super crystal clear that it was the perfect training ground for enterprise sales. And so, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about my personal journey. I love it. And I mean, my personal opinion is that your journey to get to where you are often shapes who you are today, right? And so that kind of leads me to what I feel like is the obvious question, which is how do you think that experience has kind of shaped you to, to doing what you are now? And, and I guess starting to fill in that gap from starting there to jumping to where you are now, which is working on some pretty huge deals. Sure. Well, the word you said is it's a journey, right? If I were to look back and said, am I ever going to be in enterprise sales? I would have said, absolutely not, right? I was a teenager trying to find my way. And that world and environment happened to give me a sort of a safe space to learn and grow all of the skills that I'd missed, right? Not every kid has a perfect life and not everybody gets all the tools and skills they need. But one of the most interesting things I learned in that world was that, you know, night after night, I got to talk to hundreds of people from all walks of life you know, migrant farm workers who came in there with fistfuls of cash, Wall Street guys who were selling massive promotions and buying $10,000 bottles of champagne, 
But no matter the demographic or the psychographic, underneath that, what I realized was people just wanted to be seen and heard and accepted. And when you can learn how to do that through conversation, you learn how to build these really authentic relationships. And so kind of like when you become a coach, because part of my own personal journey um, was going to get some certifications and becoming a career coach, a life coach, sales coach, whatever specific thing I work with my clients on, is that one of the things they teach you in coaching school is every time you get a client, you will learn just as much or get a gift in the same way that you support them. It's this really beautiful reciprocity. And I can look back to my time as a dancer and specifically see the businessmen who were my mentors when I didn't even realize it. I mean, we sit at the club and they you know, give me money to sit there and talk to them for hours. And we talk about the stock market and non-traditional mortgages. And so the education that I got, I don't think I could have gotten in any other way. And at the same time, so many people were stand for me to continue my education, to get a job. Um, you know, they would say things like, hey, this time in your life is a blip on your radar. And of course, at 19, I didn't know what that meant. But I can see now in hindsight, right, the universe is sprinkling these mentors and people who are supporting me and becoming my best self. And so while it would be super easy you know, to look at my non-traditional path and say, oh, poor girl, lost her college scholarship, lost her way, and then right-sized her life. And I don't look at it that way. I truly believe there's no wrong path in life. And as long as you go through experiences with open eyes and open heart and you learn, I'm not saying there weren't times that were hard and I'm not saying I wouldn't change certain individual moments, but it's that process of leaning into things and growing that I think ultimately makes us who we are. And so I'm just super grateful that I found my right path to get me to where I am today. I love that. So when was it that you kind of first uh, to, to to use something that you mentioned? Like, when did you feel like you found your way? You know, from that very beginning. Um, you know, I think as you say, it was customer service roles. It can take you in, in one of a number of different directions. You know, for me, I started in journalism, and I wanted to write. And lo and behold, I've somehow wiggled my way into marketing. Right. So, um, what what was that moment for you? Well, I think there's lots of little moments, right? I I, I saw a really cool quote that I won't paraphrase because I'll get it wrong by Abraham Hicks recently about that longing, about that wanting, right? As soon as you get where you want, something inside you shifts because you now have a bigger knowledge base to operate from. So then there's more knowing and wanting. But if I were to look in hindsight, you know, I can remember a day very distinctly when I was dancing where I knew like this was it. I sort of would give myself timeframes. Okay, I can do this for six months. And then I thought, you know what? This is a lot of money. I'm going to save 50 grand. I'm going to buy a condo in Manhattan by the way, I was 19. And then I'm going to go get a grown-up job because I don't want to get stuck. I was always very cognizant that it was a short-term path or a dead-end track. So I needed to use it for what it was and then get out. But I was getting caught up in that money because that first role, that first financial goal for me was 10 grand. And then it was 25 and then it was 50. And a good friend of mine basically said, I can't be your friend anymore. You're smart. You've got everything going for you. You have no kids. You have no responsibilities. You're going to stay forever. And I can't watch this anymore. You think it's a game, but this isn't a game. And it really kind of rattled me. And I remember going home that night and not sleeping and thought, well, if this isn't it, and I got to go do something else, what am I going to do? You know, and I was always hungry to learn. I had a, I think it was a Dale Carnegie book on my nightstand about making friends and influencing people. And one of the rules in the book was to go find mentors. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. I'm going to go to work tomorrow. I worked in, you know, Flash dancers in New York City. It's a pretty famous place in a basement right across from the David Letterman show. If it's not about the money, maybe it's about the mentors. So I decided to go to work that next day and just ask people. You know, I knew what my customers, regular customers did, right? There was the attorneys and the stockbrokers and 
met startup guys and Wall Street people and couples from the Upper East Side who had you know multi generational wealth. And so I decided to go in that night and ask people what they did and how they got there, and would they mentor me? And I didn't care that night if I made any money. And what happened was by the end of literally that night, I had probably a half a dozen job interview opportunities, right? Hey, come work at my law firm. I'm on the board of Columbia. Hey, we're a startup tech company and we think you could do really well. And I didn't know anything about tech or startup, but I knew they made a lot of money. And this is, you know, before the internet iPhones were prolific. So I called a friend from the dressing room and said, Hey, will you Google these guys for me? Right? Like on your, you know, landline at home. They said they sold their company. They IPO'd it and then sold it to hotjobs.com for a ton of money. Are they for real? And she's like, oh yeah, this is for real. I said, well, I just met them and they're starting another company and they offered me a job as a sales assistant. So I, I might do this. It's something about database marketing and casinos and it sounds really interesting. And they clearly have a ton of money and they're young. So serial entrepreneurs, like maybe they'd be great mentors. And that night after work, I went home, I buffed up the resume, I Googled resume appropriate Tire. I got it completely wrong, by the way, which is hysterical. <laughs> um, and then the next day, I interviewed for them, and I never danced again. Spent six years at a tech startup as employee number three, that scaled to be the largest uh, junket operator, which is independent casino host for the gaming industry. So a junket, right, for casinos back in the day was somebody who had a lot of relationships, and they would put them on a plane, they bring them to Vegas, they bring them to Atlantic City, and then the, the casino would cut them a check for a percentage of their losses. Nobody had brought tech to that space. And so these tech startup guys built a two-way database, very similar to hotjobs.com, right? But instead of resumes on one side and applicant tracking system on the back end, they said, hey, you're a casino customer. Are you getting the comps you deserve? Why don't you take all of those players club cards out of your shoebox, out of your nightstand, out of the rubber band, put them in our platform. We'll help you manage them. You can get all your offers here. And on the back end, they were creating a 360 view of a casino customer, right? If you gamble, you know, 50 bucks a hand at Mirage and 500 at Venetian, Venetian has your high value, but they don't know how much wallet share they're losing, right? So we kind of collected all of this information and we were trying to sell access on a kind of software basis to the casinos. We said, hey, we ran TV commercials. All that, we had 700,000 people in this database at one point. And the casinos didn't yet believe it because they didn't have websites. They didn't have email back in the, right, the late 90s. And one day, somebody on our board said, look, if you really have that many casino customers, go get this junket license state by state, and they'll pay you a percentage of what these folks earn. And we thought, okay. So overnight, I went from a B2B salesperson to the B2C person, really an independent casino host, um, and then spent a couple of the next years literally growing this company where we would take customers, kind of like a database marketing company, but call them, email them, say, hey, I'd like to be your casino host. I can get you this at Venetian. I can get you this in Greece or this on a cruise line. And then whatever they played, there's a formula called theoretical value. The company got a certain percentage of that. Um, we were actually slated for an IPO in 07, which is right when the economy right was starting to crash, worst recession since the Great Depression, pre-COVID. Um, you know, and overnight, my seven year plus years there, hundreds of thousands of stock options went from, oh my God, I'm going to be rich, right? To penniless. And I can see now, you know, at the time I was crushed because I thought, you know, I was looking at high-rise condos that on the strip, I'm going to buy my million-dollar dream home, right, at 27. And yet that foundation of seven years under ex-CIOs in tech is a foundation of skills that still continues to serve me well to this day, right? I can remember being laid off four times in five years after that 2007 recession started and the startup went under, 
But each time I lost my job, I was fortunate because I had worked for the founders of Hot Jobs. I knew my brain understood databases like, like no other. And LinkedIn had now since been born. And I was like, oh, another two-way database platform. How do I leverage keywords? And what fields do I look at to get recruiters to message me? Meanwhile, I was learning friends would get out of work and couldn't find a job, right? Whereas I was so fortunate, sales background, you know, scrappy dancer who knew how to hustle and now a database of job opportunities in those five years or four years being laid off multiple times. That's when I got into large deal sales, um, ultimately in outsourcing, right? So I had learned how to sell as a bartender. I'd learned how to sell as a dancer, worked in marketing, finance, um, and sales in the hotels, and then had this string of learning that many, many companies, vendors sell into the hotel casinos here in Vegas and have a hard time managing those relationships because the business is a little different, right? It's highly regulated on the casino side. A lot of market dynamics were shifting. You know, the casino revenue used to be mostly gambling and they gave a lot of other things away for free. And then the revenue mix changed from now there was food and beverage revenue. Then there was hotel suite revenue and entertainment was born. Now Las Vegas is considered one of the entertainment capitals of the world. And so while that revenue mix was changing, big companies would sell these big deals, but then struggle to manage these relationships. And here I was living in Vegas. I got the stripes because I'd worked at the Luxor and MGM Resorts, but really had a sales and, and marketing background. And so I got very lucky in that each time I was laid off, I got a bigger sales or account management job to the point where when you know ACS sold a $300 million IT services contract to MGM Resorts to outsource large parts of their IT service desk, right? And user, all of those kinds of things and the account was failing, there was a handshake deal between you know, the CEO of both companies. And they said, find us somebody in Las Vegas who knows our business and can help this. And that was a very small population of people. So it really helped me accelerate my career, you know, a 300% increase in income over four years, simply because I was laid off. And I learned how to leverage that experience into something bigger and better each time. And so super, super lucky through all of that, right? Um, and now, right now, I get to figure out what's next. Yeah, well, don't they say you make make your own luck, right? Um, uh, it's such a such a fascinating journey to get to where you are now. And, and one thing that really jumped out at me, you mentioned, you know, when you were getting uh, getting laid off after two thousand and seven, you mentioned the the skills that were serving you well, and you've kind of touched on like uh, building relationships. Um, so I'm I'm curious what what would you consider those like um, core foundational skills to be that were serving you really well to you know to to be in that position. So I mean, you say luck, um, uh, whatever it is, you know, to be in that position to be like the the ideal person that they were looking for. Mm. I would say I would break it into a couple of pieces, right? I didn't see it at the time, but the second I lost my job, you know, the first time you get laid off, security comes, they walk you off property. It's, it's sort of a traumatic thing uh, the first time it happens. You know, many friends were in that position as well. You know, they went off to the bars and went drinking and I was like, oh my God, I have to find another job. My brain had been wired for sales. So I went out and write the five-step sales prospect. What is step one? What is my prospect list? Who are all the companies I want to work for? Who are all the people in my network that I can have that? And then what is the conversation that I want to have? I think because I had that sales backbone and that sales training for so long that I was able to look at job search through the lens of sales, right? And, and, and that does a couple things. Because of the way that I, my brain is orientated and what made me successful selling, I'm not the best salesperson out there. They're probably faster talkers, sweeter talkers. 
but one of my powers is authenticity. And so when you can lean into that, and for me, that means a couple of things, learning how to have hard conversations and also being super mindful of what's in it for other people, right? And so a lot of people lose a job and they send out the emails and they, oh my God, I need a job, I need a job, I need a job. No, I did a lot of research, right? I almost looked at it like a consultant would look at it. If these are the 10 companies I want to work at, what are their pain points? Are they hitting their revenue targets? Are they spending money? Are they losing money? What are the open job recs they would have? And I would be really, really specific. Um, and people would say, oh my God, Jamie, that takes a lot of time. Because eventually when I got into career coaching, I, I learned that the process that I took apparently is not the normal process, right? Not everybody's brain is orientated that way. But what I found was, if you put four to eight hours of research into a job you really want, customize your resume, you customize your cover letter, and you do very specific outreach and you show them the pain points and the business problems that you can solve for them, complete strangers will get on the phone with you and, and take your call, right? Because there's enough people out there raising their hand for a job. Very few will differentiate and make that investment. And you probably see it all the time on LinkedIn. Oh my God, help me. I've applied for 5,000 jobs and no one's gotten back to me. To me, that's the definition of insanity, right? No one's reading your resumes. No, you know, the applicant tracking systems are inundated. They're going to bounce you. I don't know how much time it took, takes people to apply for a thousand jobs. What if you took five, right? And you put together a little PowerPoint or a deck or a point of view on a two-pager and said, here's the problems I think you're struggling with. Here's how my skill set can help you solve those things. And, and then the third piece of it for me is I always lean into curiosity, and I try to be humble, right? If I'm adding value up front and I'm asking you to do me a favor, I'm going to be really curious and I'm going to tap into what I think your values are. So if you're an HR recruiter, right? And you've got five jobs open, you're probably getting pounded on LinkedIn from everybody, right? But if I can use the sales brain of how do I connect with this person? How do I tap into the fact that they love their company through my language and customize my language and just ask questions like, hey, I'd be really grateful for your support. Can you point me in the right direction? How do I navigate your company to really show my interest and demonstrate my value and get out? And what I found is people like to help people who've done a little bit of that heavy lifting, right? And I, I always end things with a reciprocal offer, right? Like, how can I help you? Or don't be ever afraid to ask me X, Y, or Z. You know, you acknowledge and validate in the beginning. Thank you. I realize I'm messaging you and you don't know me. Here's what I'm looking to accomplish. And I'd love it if you could help me or point me in the right direction. I'd be grateful even, a little bit of gratitude. And then the sandwich at the end is an offer for them. You know, people respond to people they think are authentic and do that kind of work. And so I'd say for me, the skill set or superpower is, is having gotten to refine that message. And if we bring it all the way back to the roots, you can go to any strip club in the country. And there's huge ones here in Vegas, right? There might be 200 women working a night. 80% of them are probably walking around the room with their eyes at the ceiling or on the floor, maybe smoking a cigarette going, you want to dance? You want to dance? You want to dance? And getting a rejection rate 95% of the time. From day one, I said, I'm, I'm not, you know, I was not the most beautiful person, not the most fit person, but I really enjoy talking to people. So I'd pick four or five people and I'd go talk to them and start a conversation. Say, listen, I'm not looking to hustle dances right now. I want to get to know you. And what I would found is then I made more money every single night even in an empty club, I could walk out of there with a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred bucks, you know, on a garter belt on my ankle, simply because I talk to people and build relationships. And I think that art of the relationship and getting the practice to metabolize how to do that, the environment doesn't matter. It's no different when you walk into a boardroom of investment bankers and the chairman of the board, right? 
people buy from people, right? Zig Ziglar talked about that since the 70s. And I think we've gotten to a day and age where people forget that, right? It's, it's the tools and the CRM and the analytics. I did a demo a few weeks ago of a new, of a new startup that has AI built into video imaging. So they're like, look, we can cue your salespeople if they're doing an orals presentation on video of when we think people are tuning out. They said, what do you think? I said, I think that's really great and interesting. Some of my sellers are very senior in their career. If they can't read an audience online, I got a problem, bigger problem than whether or not we can afford your software, right? Because people buy from people. And those are the, the muscle memory I think you get when you have had the gift of being able to build relationships at all levels of people, all levels of organizations throughout your career. Love all of this. Why do you think we have... The sellers have lost sight of the value of relationships. I think it boils down to a couple things. So having spent, what, 15 plus years in technology sales, there's a couple trends I'll comment to. And one of the trends I've seen is that when you have a lot of people at the very top of the organization with hard skills, domain expertise, finance, operations, technology, I'm a head of cloud expert. All of that is great. I've seen many companies over the last couple of decades minimize the sales skills because they're soft skills, they're people skills. They think, well, anyone can learn that. If I got guys that can code Python and can you know, spin up servers in AWS, of course they can talk to people. But the reality is it's a different part of the brain and it's a different part of the skill set. And so many of the top tier service providers right now, you know, multi-billion dollar companies are having this challenge of why are we not growing? Well, you know, we've grown through acquisition for the last 10 years. None of our accounts are growing, but they're run by somebody who came up through the organization with a technical skill set, a client partner, a client delivery executive. And then these folks at very senior levels of their careers, they're probably making more money than they've ever made, are told, go run this account. Great. Now go sell the portfolio. And many of them are afraid to talk to people because that is not their domain. Nobody has actually taught them to have a hard conversation. And it's not enough to stick these folks through, oh, great, we're going to go buy the latest sales methodology from Miller Hyman, Franklin Covey, you get two days of executive presence, great. And they put them in the room and they do really well. But just because you can do things once in front of a trainer does not mean you've metabolized it as a way of being to be able to implement that in the demands of a CIO. Maybe there's delivery problems, right? And oftentimes, you know, the person who's over the delivery for the, comp- for the account is trying to also sell. It's a very difficult, intricate nuance. And I know many companies are trying to figure out how to solve that. Um, and at the same time, we have to think about the psychological safety. What FTE making two to 300K a year is going to say, I'm not comfortable talking to people. They're not, right? They're, they're going to hide. They're going to say things like the customer's not getting back to me. They canceled the QBR. Oh, I sent over the proposal. Nobody's responded. Right. But anybody with a sales brain is going to say, wait a minute. We worked on that proposal for three months. You emailed it over. You didn't fly your butt out there and get into a room and have a conversation. You didn't socialize it with each one of the stakeholders to get their value proposition, their buy-in before you presented it. And then we wonder why people aren't selling, right? So it's sort of this perfect storm, at least in IT services, right? Managed services, outsourcing systems integrators that I see is this shift of expecting and assuming technical brain folks can automatically do all of those things. Well, sure, some can. Many cannot. And I have seen it time and time again, right? And 
there was a portion of my career at Aptos where I was a deal maker. My job was to go hunt and find and close very large new logos. And what would ha- and managed services in general has about a 90% renewal rate because it's big and complicated to rip somebody out. And there's a lot of risk to put somebody new. So they get into a lot of renewals. You would think that that would be easy. But what happens is there's pitfalls in that. If you've got a 90% renewal rate, you're not really paying attention to them, right? And, and you may or may not have the right skill sets involved, right? Somebody with that sales acumen, that relationship building DNA, managing it. And so what I, I spent three years, I was sort of captain saving account. Like, hey, marquee customers you know, are terming us. Well, what happened? Well, I don't know, Consumer, go figure it out. And I would get out there and that's when I would see sort of these dynamics of a lot of technical folks or delivery folks who are very smart in their domain, but they hadn't necessarily gotten the support that they need to have those tough conversations. So they hide, right? Or they're busy with other things. And it's not their fault. They haven't been empowered that way. I have had personally in my sales career, 17 managers in the last 10 years. That's a tenure of about six months per person. I can okay, do the met, right? And, and, and that's very common in, in managed services companies, right? The, the attrition rates are very, very high in general. And I can count one, who is willing to meet with me on a regular basis. Think about that. So you take the job of leader, your job title, your responsibility is to manage the people in your care. But sadly, oftentimes, right, there's no rules in business. Everybody gets to play it their own way. If you have a leader who doesn't have the management skills for people, nor the desire to help people, maybe their ambition is their number one priority, they're not going to give their salespeople any of their time. So it becomes the survival of the fittest mentality, right? And then the committee gets together and they says, why are, why are all the salespeople leading? Simon Sinek has a great um, model that he shares that he got from the Navy SEALs. I think it was Navy SEAL Team 6. And he goes in and he talks to them and he said, how do you develop trust? And what does that look like? And they said, well, it's a two-part model. And we have this saying in the Navy SEALs, because trust is very important, right? They're going into the highest stakes. Their lives could be on the line. And so we say in the Navy SEALs, the saying apparently goes, you know, I can trust you with my life, but can I trust you with my money and my wife? Two very different things. And part of the point that they emphasize in this talk, which I love so much, is that while trust lives on a spectrum, you can't have trust in one area of your life and not in the other. So if we bring that back to the relationship aspect. Do your customers trust you? Sure, your CSAT might be a nine, but do they trust you? And the model for trust in this particular example from uh, the, the Navy SEALs, on one side is competency. Can this person do the job? Can they do what they say they're supposed to do? What is their skill level? And on the bottom, is do I trust them, right? So, so likability, all of the soft skills. And what's really interesting in business, we have an inordinate amount of metrics for capability. High performers, are you hitting your numbers? What's the C stat? How many calls have you made? Data, 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 data. We have zero to no metrics for trust. So what often happens in corporations, the people who get to the top, either they play the game better than everybody else, they spend all of their, much of their time working those internal relationships and maybe no time with customers, but they know how to play the game well, so they rise. Or they're really good at their domain and they get promoted based on results. But without those metrics for trust underneath them, which the qualities that we say earn help us earn trust in other people, right? What, what, what inspires a leader who can follow them, right? All of those trust elements that we can't measure. Oftentimes what happens if you go into a room of people and you say, hey guys, who's the jerk? 
everybody points to the same person. They're often the person who's been the promoted the most time. And at the same time, if they say, who do you follow? Who do you trust to show up, to get in the trenches with you? Who has the heart? Who cares about you the most? Unequivocally, they often also point to the same person, but it's a different person. Because everybody knows, everybody can feel this stuff. And so we have leaders who have been promoted without the trust, without the natural ability and qualities that, ha- that represent a leader. And we've got people focused on the results for themselves. You start to see where some of these imbalances can come from. And there's nothing wrong here. It just is what it is. But I think if we're going to get serious about helping sellers grow and cultivate the right skills, we have to start putting more emphasis on you know, what is typically been called those soft skills, those leadership skills that are difficult to measure, but make all of the difference in the world. Does this person show up? Right? Do they care about me? Is there integrity with the words? When I talk to leaders and they say, oh, great, we've hired XYZ company to do coaching for, for now I don't have to meet with my people anymore. Something's wrong, right? So you, we, it, it's going to take a major shift. And what's been really, really cool for me, I'd say since I published the book, which I thought was going to ruin my career, which has had the opposite effect of conversations like this, where I get to share my perspective that are really authentic, is I've met with more CXOs in the last six months who are saying, hey, right, you, you've got a great story and this is really authentic. How do we find more leaders like you? Like, well, I can't answer that for you specifically, but what I can tell you is that it's a journey and it takes work and it's not just all about the numbers, right? So there's going to be some major cultural shifts within organizations that have to start looking at these things, I personally think, if we're going to survive. Uh, Gartner was here in Las Vegas last week, right? They had all sorts of sales conferences and they were talking a lot about the shifting market dynamics. You've likely heard a lot of these stats already. You know, prospective buyers are engaging with companies and reps much later in the sales cycle. Back when I started 25 years ago, the stats were, it takes seven touches to get a meeting with somebody, right? We all heard the stats. They announced at Gartner last week, it's taking on average 27 to 35 touches for somebody to respond. Well, why? The proliferation of technology, they're getting emails and bots and IMs from every rep out there. And so inboxes are completely cluttered. Simultaneously, the shifts in security extrapolated via COVID, the days of walking the halls are gone. I used to be able to go to Nike and go to the cafeteria and then go to the employee event and walk the halls. And by the end of the day, I had 20 meetings set up for my next time. Today, certain buildings, there's an ocular scan and a badge. And if somebody allows you to go back in, like kind of follow them in, your picture's taken, their picture's taken, and automatically goes to security and the manager once is a warning, twice, I think you're done, right? So, so at the same time, you know, it used to be CIOs and executives, they wanted that relationship with the rep because you could keep them abreast of latest technology, trends, white paper, you're the source of information to add value and then you, you hope through that relationship building of adding value that when they were ready to buy something or thinking about it, they'd include you. Well, now they're, the preference is self-service. People want information in the way that they want it, when that they want it. And they say, okay, great. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to download the white papers. I'm going to watch the videos. I'm going to go out to dinner with Gartner myself. And then they come to you and say, great, here's the RFP. And by the way, we need your response next week. Right. And think about the impact of that. In the services business, the cost of doing business, of entering those RFPs, is typically 1% to 3% of the total contract value. It is a massive investment in resources 
And industry averages, you lose 90% of them and you win 10% of them, right? And then you've got, you know, somebody fresh out of college who's the procurement analyst. These poor folks, right? We're like, hey, you know, we can't invest $400,000 in your bid if we haven't talked to anybody on your side. And you say, well, that would be favoritism, right? You can't talk to anybody. You just need to read this, interpret it. And then if we like what you have to say, right, then we'll meet with you. And so now it's not just you know, the vendors, the service suppliers that are struggling. But if you've got 15 or 20 stakeholders at a company, the reality that their third-party advisor, their analyst, whoever wrote these 30 to 60 to 90 page RFPs accurately captured all of the nuances of opinions and drivers and metrics, or did they take something that they had recycled from somebody else, update it and get it out the door. And now we're both working from a document that's not going to meet their needs, right? Because we've decided not to get in a two-way dialogue because that would take too much time. Instead, we're going to put you through all of the paces and then hopefully you get it right and we talk to you at the end. And so I think there's going to be some really interesting shifts in how companies go to market for new business, but also how sellers and revenue people have to adapt so they can continue that relationship, continue that dialogue. Because we all know what's written on a piece of paper and black and white with binary does both sides a disservice. It does not, it commoditizes everything. Great, here's the spreadsheet. Let's go with whoever's cheapest or whoever has the most mature proposal process and got us back the best looking response in two weeks of something that only three or four years ago, you would have gotten a month to respond to. So there's a lot of shift right now. It's going to be really interesting to see which companies, which sellers adapt and which are no longer here in the next couple of years. So much I... I really liked in there and I've written, I've written down so many things that we could take this but I think the the one that is most obvious to me that you kind of touched on there which is the way that from your experience in the past of how you were building relationships before and and the way that people buy now as you say has com- completely changed right um you know the one that sticks in my mind is that pe- people want that self-service right they're, they're doing their research online you know to, to me in a marketing sense it's you know what do you have on your website, your brand, all of these things, which provide that context right up until the point where it goes, okay, now now I want to talk to a human being. So the, the game has completely changed, as you mentioned. So in 2023 then, Jamie, what would you say are three ways to you know build genuine, authentic relationships? I can, I can encapsulate all three in one of my sales philosophies. I truly believe sales is service in the same vein we've been talking about for decades, that servant leadership. It's easy to pay lip service to, oh, I'm a servant leader. Google that on LinkedIn. You'll see millions of people. I'm a servant leader. Okay, well, let's talk about that because there's a really big difference between an ideal and the muscle memory bringing those things to life on a daily basis. And so I think of what's going to be the game changer over this this year and, and going forward is sellers who adopt a sales mentality of service. So what does that mean? Like, let's unpack it a little bit, right? One of those things is that I stress with my team is being prepared and doing your homework, right? Take something very simple. You know, uh, maybe you get a lead through your funnel because your marketing team's doing a great job. And they're like, I want information on X. An average seller is going to say, great, here's the links to our website. Have at it. Somebody with a little bit more maturity and maybe who's like a B plus player, they're going to customize a little bit of information and send it back, right? What I try to get my team to do is take a, do a little bit more homework, right? What are the pain points of that company? What is that person's role, right? There is the power of the internet at your hands in Google, right? 
I'm going to say, go back and introduce yourself with some very pointed questions, but also invite them to a conversation with that data. And that doesn't have to be hours and hours of work, right? It could be simply going to their last two earnings and finding out what their CFO wants to do. And if this is an IT person, tying the information you get back to their you know, CFO's objectives and showing them, hey, I can partner with you and help you with X, Y, and Z. And these are the offerings that can do that. But then the art part comes in almost like dating, right? You've got to give enough information to intrigue the conversation with the ultimate goal of, hey, let's get together and talk about this. Um, and to me, that will be the game changer of how much people look at every interaction as a way to serve others. If you are adding value, if you're looking at it, what's in it for them and showing up with the highest levels of professionalism and authenticity through those interactions, whether it's on the phone or in email, you will convert to business ultimately. Um, so that's sort of the big one. And then the other two are trying to be that conduit for information. If we think about different stakeholders, it's easy when someone says, hey, give me, comp- give me information on your company X, right? And maybe this person's a director. In the managed services business or outsourcing business, it can be a really sensitive topic, right? So for example, when a large enterprise outsources an entire division or multiple divisions, there can be staff transfer. People might be worried about losing their jobs. And so I spent a lot of time with my team on who is the persona and what is the win for them, the personal win for them of how we could work with them. Because what I found throughout my own career, when I first got in my previous company, there was a little while where they had me doing sales coaching. So as a deal maker, trying to get out of it, trying to figure out what was next, aligned to my own values, and had gone to coaching school. And so the you know, CEO at the time would say, great, we can let you be an internal sales coach, but you need to find more Jamie Conselman's first and keep, do, keep the day job of winning the $100 million deal. So I got this cool period where for a few years, I coached a lot of sellers. And what I started realizing is it's not always natural because of the pace that people work at for people to customize that message to who the stakeholder is, right? It sounds obvious when you take that step back because the what's in it for a CFO or a CIO is going to be very different than what's in it for the director of database. And I think a myth that I started to see over and over, not on purpose, not because people aren't being thoughtful, but they get very, people in sales are often moving quickly and get very reactionary that director level folks would come and say, I need X, Y, and Z. Well, clearly somebody had asked them to go get that information. But if we think about that sensitivity around people thinking, oh, the economy is getting worse. Maybe I'm going to be out of a job. Suddenly you have a person who could be selling against you once you turn that information over. So then how do you give them what they've asked for, but also educate them that like, hey, you know, we can partner on this. We don't want to be a vendor. And for me, I can say there are, there are customers that I've had throughout my career that were a director or an analyst or an engineer that have aspirations of being a VP, an SVP, a CXO. And so with some of those folks that are in mid-level roles, understanding the business I work in can be sensitive, we start to shift the context of the conversation to what's in it for them. And it can be as simple as saying, hey, right, educating them, your CXOs are looking for X. Here's one slide that shows you the value proposition that we can bring. Oh, but by the way, a lot of people in corporate America tend to think the bigger my team, the larger my domain, the faster I rise. What I found is the true leaders, especially with IT and outsourcing, start to realize that I can leverage a partner, an outsourcer, an Atos, an Accenture, whoever, to do the grunt work, the hard work, the stuff that causes strife internally in the company because you've got different departments. I, if I can take that grunt work off my plate to a partner, 
it frees up my time to focus on the most strategic parts of my business. And that is how you rise. You show that you are a leader and you can bring in partners, right? And when you educate or offer that perspective to a prospect who's perhaps mid-level, now you have separated yourself from everybody else and you have tied what you offer to their personal ambition of growing their career, right? And so those slight distinctions in how you communicate with people, I have found will make the most difference, right? Because then they start to come back and say, hey, I was in this meeting and they were talking about X, Y, Z, and I'm not sure how we can do that. And I'm like, great, I can help you with that. My team can help you with that. Here's a straw man of a business case of what that would look like, Mr. Miss IT person. Now you can take that to your most senior executives. And if they want to know more of how we did that, let's get everybody in a room and we'll figure it out together. And it is a completely different dynamic to sell. And I'm seeing more and more people on both sides from you know my side of the business, the services business, and the customer side of the business being open to those types of dialogues. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, right? It takes a little bit more work. But I would so much rather have a handful of substantive conversations that turn into real opportunities than a whole bunch of email volleyball games where people go silent on each other and nobody knows what's going on at either side, right? The stats might look good in the CRM. You had 50 customer meetings. But over time, it's going to come out in the wash because you're not going to actually sell anything, right? And those people are not building relationships with you. They're a name in a CRM system. You know, one of the ways when people tell me on my team, like a new hire or an interview process, and I'll ask people, tell me about some of your customers that you've worked with for the long term, right? And, and I had an example of somebody at a previous company that's like, oh, I've known this guy for 30 years and I coach his kids in softball and all of these things. And I'm like, that's great. What has he bought from you? You went, well, uh, 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 oh, well it's, it's, it's not quite that easy. And they don't, and I'm like, no, no, no. So you're saying he doesn't trust you, right? If you've had a relationship for 20 years and you've been trying to sell to their company and offering value at the five or seven different places you've worked and they've never bought anything, there's a lack of trust, right? And so it's just a very different kind of context to, to operate from. Mm. Yeah, particularly the last one, absolutely fascinating, which everything that you say, like listening to you talk about it, it's like, well, this is common sense, right? Like that, that, this, this is what we should be doing every day. And so how do you, I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned earlier where you were talking about you know, your approach and the way that you think about sales is often in the minority as opposed to the majority. And I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, if we take that assumption that a lot of the sellers are in a similar mindset of, you know, it's activity, 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 it's, it's not that genuine, it's not as authentic. But for your sellers, how do you go about at coaching them? You know, are, are you doing it through processes and frameworks like some leaders do? Are you doing it through like one-to-ones and do, like building relationships? I'm really curious how you kind of go about embedding your your view and your um, your approach to selling to really get your sellers on board with it so they get to that point of, oh my God, th- this is common sense. Yeah. Well, I love so many things you said. And I want to be really clear. I don't think anything I do is really that special. I just have the the opportunity, the gift, whatever, the experience of when you've gone from selling $20 table dances to $50,000 you know, piece of software at a SaaS company, right? To $30 million naming rights, um, sponsorship deals for MGM, where there's, you know, Louis Vuitton and things on the pyramid when you fly in to $500 million worth of, you know, TCV at a time. It's that I've been in the trenches for 25 years and I'm starting to learn that I have mastery in a way that works for me. Um, and some of those nuances are things that can be taught. And so I'm probably four years into this journey of 
learning how to package that knowledge and help train, coach, mentor others. And I have to give credit to when I was at Atos and still trying to figure out what was next, you know, the head of inside sales there was a friend. I had coached her um, on deals uh, and she was honest. She's like, hey, I'm struggling. We've got 25 juniors. They're super smart. We got all the tech stack. They're making the phone calls. They're getting out the emails. We're not finding any deals. And I was like, oh, well, I can help with that. I'm not, you know, at that point, I didn't have any training certifications. I was going through a Harvard program to become a facilitator uh, and, a, and a, you know, certified trainer. So I don't really know what I'm doing, but I can take everything that was really hard for me to learn, the things where I had to fail forward over and over and over again. And what if I just package them into bite-sized pieces of content, PowerPoints, exercises, and we kind of do some virtual trainings and then we'll get everybody together in the room so they can practice. Because what I have found is, so much of sales is by yourself. Now, maybe you're lucky. Maybe you have a sales manager at a certain point who comes to meetings with you. I was never that person. I was out there on my own more times than I can count. And so I failed a lot, but I failed forward. And so we started taking some of those lessons. And the beautiful part about early career starters is they're like sponges. And so we just did all sorts of things from role play to how do you cold call to how do you ABC test the subject headings to help them develop that authenticity muscle and how they communicate. We had to do things like, okay, here's what the marketing slicks say. God love the marketers. They're great. But here's how you have to translate that into human language for based on the role of the person you're talking to. So we did a lot of that work over a year and a half, two years. And in that process, what happened was, number one, it gave me the confidence that I could teach this and that I love teaching that. Um, so that in itself was a gift. And then separately, I started a mentor program with the juniors, with the very senior business developers, right? The hunters that are going out there. And a lot of these folks, I was also coaching behind the scenes. So I was starting to see the gaps that were common among many sellers. So many sellers had a technical expertise or they'd been in sales forever and they were great relationship builders. Because I started part of my career in data and then later as a financial analyst, I developed the skill of building business cases. I was never the most technology fluent person, right? I would say my technology mindset or knowledge base is a few inches thick and miles wide. My superpower is understanding a company's business drivers and then marrying my company's products or services to that. And so very early on, I started making three to five page slides, business cases, whole bunch of assumptions, right? Um, but I, and it was always enough to put forward. And what I would found in that process was the naysayers at a company who didn't want to work with me would throw up on it and poke holes on it. And in my head, I was like, gotcha. Because when they're trying to prove me wrong, they were teaching me how I needed to update this business case to make it smarter and better. And now we're in collaboration instead of working against each other. And then as you go up the food chain, you bring the right business case into CFO that says, hey, you're talking to Wall Street every quarter and you're missing this, this, and this. And I think we can accelerate your path to get there. The floodgates go open. Every seller on the planet has been told, sell upstairs, right? Talk to the C-suite. I have found very few sellers have the muscle memory and the confidence and the vernacular to do so succinctly that they get those conversations over and over and over. Learning how to develop a business case helps with that. And what was really cool with the senior sellers is at first I thought, oh, they're going to think I'm crazy. So I tell friends behind the scene like, hey, we're going to do this little webinar about building a business case. I know it helped you. I know it helped Susie. Just come to it because I'm trying to grow my muscles as a coach. I'm trying to lean into authenticity. The coaching and training was something I did outside of Atos. It's a little scary to show yourself in that way and the company come for support. And what started happening was those webinars, which we did weekly, I call them Wisdom Wednesdays, 
started getting forwarded out all over the company. Within two weeks, we had 300 people showing up to these things. And so literally I was making it up as I go along. And then what would happen is the feedback afterwards was awesome. That was helping people. Grown, mature, seasoned sellers were coming and say, hey, my deal has been stuck for three months. Can you help me develop one of those business casey thingy things? I'm like, absolutely, right? And we spend a half a day and I'd give them homework. Hey, go find this, go to the earnings, Google these words. What are the three things? And we started templatizing this process and they started getting more customer engagement. Their sales cycle started shrinking, right? And that was how I ultimately ended up um, moving up into leadership because one day the CEO of America's called me. He's like, what on earth is going on? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, so two years of inside sales, almost no results. I know you've been hanging out and coaching and training and doing some of that Jamie stuff with them. We have more qualified pipeline from the juniors of your 16 juniors than we do from the 350 sellers in North America that I paid 250 ahead to. What is going on? And I was like, well, I'm just thinking of what was hard for me. And I put it in PowerPoints. And then we go down to Dallas and they practice, right? Think boiler room, right? I get on a call. They get on a call. Um, Things like teaching them the process of starting with research and understanding the industry pain points, right? So that they can talk relative. and, And we just kind of... And I just start showing him stuff. And he's like, great. So here's what we're going to do. In, head of inside sales is leaving. You've got the juniors and we're going to give you the seniors now too. And I was like, oh, great. So suddenly now I had two teams underneath me. And it was ironic because 25 years in sales, I was kind of looking to get out, right? Burnt out and just the chase of the deal no longer fed me with the way helping people did as a coach and as a trainer. And then overnight, these two sides of me that have been so separate, that barrier vanished or vanished. Right. And so I guess I'm a, when I say I do things a little differently, it's that I show up to my team as a leader, as a coach and trainer first. I just happen to have a domain expertise of selling technology and services for 25 years. And so it's a very slightly different shift in context. But if I circle back to your question of how do I get you know, other folks on board with this, I'm old school, right? I was at Unisys. Um, the first thing I said was, I got to get my team together. And they said, well, we're not traveling right now, right? COVID has just happened and travel budgets. I'm like, no, 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 no. We have a billion dollar target and you've spent how much money on my budget? I need everybody in the room. And so we just, we flew to Dallas. I took a week planning what this workshop was going to be. As I got the agenda socialized, people throughout the company were like, hey, I've got some account managers. I, I've got some consultants that are new that or some junior folks. People were struggling a little bit. Can we send them to your training? And I was like, sure. And before you knew it, we had a large group of people. I think I called the program, um, you know, being the leader that, that Unisys needs you to be, right? And so it was a, a way for me to take the proprietary leadership training curriculum that I had created over many, many years and on weekends and PTOs and vacations and now apply it to sales. Because all of the trainings I've been fortunate to go through in my life were amazing. I did not see myself as a leader until very recently because of some subconscious beliefs that I had had, right? Despite winning these deals and despite leading teams, somewhere in this subconscious Jamie Consman brain with the C-suite aspirations, I wasn't considered really a leader until I got to that level, despite all the things I've read, right? Lead at any level. It's not about the title, right? So as I worked through that for myself, I realized I'm not alone. Many women, many sellers who've been individual contributors their whole lives hadn't necessarily thought of themselves as leaders and hadn't strengthened some of the leadership skills that could help them accelerate their deals, accelerate their careers, their time to revenue. And so I took the, you know, this team through a two and a half day training where we did things like, what is your leadership style? How do 
the best leaders lead and inspire loyalty and then the worst qualities you've ever experienced. And then what would happen if we applied those best qualities to how we sell and interact with customers? What would happen? How would the experience start to shift? Right. And, and, And then the collaboration, all I do is facilitate and ask the questions. The learning happens from their insights in the room. And then we do the fun stuff, right? Like breaking boards and hot coals and all of that kind of crazy stuff. But uh, by the end of it, it has shown me that no matter people's career stage, there's value in that kind of team building, that kind of structured education for professional growth. You know, Martha Beck uh, was one of Oprah's first life coaches. And she has expression that is how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so to me, that gives me permission to coach and train whether it's in groups or individuals, people who report to me because you're holistically helping the people. And when you do that, sellers come alive. So many organizations, so many leaders focus on what's the number, what's the Salesforce updates, and all of that is great. But if your people are not waking up inspired, if their dreams are not cultivated so that they can understand how the company's mission can be linked with their dreams, well, then you've got people who are coming to a job and clocking in versus waking up inspired and wanting to do the hard work to help your company succeed. It's a very different place to operate. Mm, Absolutely love that. And I want to ask one penultimate question because I I completely agree with everything that that you're saying. And it's going from, and it's often the things that get overlooked. You know, I think with what a lot of folks I talk to on the podcast with what you can do with data and you mentioned on the numbers and it's like, okay, how are we progressing towards our quota and all these things? And, you know, what meetings do you have booked in? So on and so forth. And it's really that human element that comes in underneath it. And I think there's a real fine balance between the two. And and to the point that you're making often, I think with sellers that, that I speak with, there is that element of, and that always comes back and comes up a lot, is actually understanding your customer and that's to the extent of, you know, not like what their job title is and what they do, but it's like who they are as people, like what stresses them out at night, what keeps them up, what, what um, you know, what ruins their sleep because they're sat up worrying about it or, you know, they, they get frustrated about and really getting under the skin of that is, it's not easy. It, it takes time to get to that stage, but so many great points that you mentioned and I just want to look at it through the lens of um, as kind of a penultimate question. Um, you talk about like uh, sales leaders and how they can approach, you know, inspiring their teams. Now, I know through your career, you've gone through the 2008 uh, recession that we had back then. We're not, not exactly in the same kind of situation right now, but it's tough for sellers out, out there right now. Um, and um, and obviously the, the way that people are selling, as you mentioned, has changed. So for, for other sales leaders that are listening, what would your advice be to them for inspiring their teams, particularly during a recession, economic downturn, whatever you want to call, whatever we're in at the moment? I think the biggest thing you can do is keep showing up. So many leaders can get busy or uncomfortable with hard times. They hide. Right? That's my interpretation. How many times did I try to get a hold of a boss or leader? And they're, oh, I'm busy. I'm on cash calls. I've got leadership meetings. Like, Keep showing up for your team, even when you don't know what to say, and especially when you don't want to. Right? Because when you model showing up and creating that space for people, right, it, it, it shows them you're in the trenches with them too. And so, so to me, the biggest one is just keep showing up. 
the second thing is be a facilitator of dialogue, right? Find out what's important to the individual people on your team um, and facilitate that conversation. A lot of my weekly sales meetings are, hey, what's going well? What's not going well? Where do you need help? What roadblocks can I remove? And it may sound junior or juvenile, but what I find is people are excited to share what's going well, and they don't often take the time individually to do that with each other. And then when they share what's not going well, they can get, they can source crowd feedback. And if it turns out three or four people need the same roadblock, well, now I have my priorities of what, as a leader, I can go do to help them. And then the third thing that I believe is super easy with the access of information we have at our fingertips, help bring tools to the team, right? I, you know, four years ago, if you would have asked me if I was going to be doing things like breathwork sessions, meditations, um, walking people through scripts with senior sellers, I would have said, absolutely no way. That's separate. There's no place for that in business. Sellers need to sell. It has a little bit more of that, you know, drive masculine way of operating because it has served me so well until it didn't. And what I have found is as I have found my own courage to share things that have helped me in my life and my career, even when they might be a little esoteric or different, that People are really hungry for that kind of authenticity and not everyone has taken the time or the investment to do the out work outside of work on themselves. And so it could be things as simple as a quote, a video, right? A poem. You know, when I kick off a team meeting, when we have new people come in, uh, there's a poem that I have everyone read and it's about the flight of the geese. If you've never read it, I'll send it to you. But basically it talks about why geese fly in formation. They do things like honking from the back to encourage the goose up front. When the goose up front who's leading the flight, who, by the way, takes the most um, stress, the most wind, the most force, because they're all the way up front. When they get tired, they go to the back and somebody else takes turns, right? And so the, the, the moral of the story is if we have enough sense, we will stick together like geese because we can get where we're going faster. We can take care of each other. Um, and I find that when you do that and you ground your team, there's a lot of neuroscience out there and I love that it's growing in popularity that we have three brains. We used to think of our brain as the gray matter in our head and scientists are now showing that the neurons in our, in our stomach and the neurons in our heart operate with brain-like properties. And so while once upon a time we thought in business, think with your head and think with your head, the neuroscience is now showing leaders make more positive impact, inspire more loyalty and make better decisions when they ground into themselves physiologically and they connect their head, their heart and their gut brains. And so things like that, as I learn them, I believe a leader's responsibility is to be a conduit of information for their team. So for me, I'm always trying to add new tools to my seller's toolbox. They may or may not need it in this moment, but at some point they've got it to refer back to. Um, and so for me, that's how I model authenticity is by showing up, you know, facilitating dialogue and then remembering to continue to add tools to their toolbox for when they want them. Because for me, that's my purpose. I believe I'm put on this planet to help people unleash their potential and awaken their dreams. And we do that through conversation, right? And so when I get to show up in corporate America and be myself and proliferate those values in others, well, to me, that's purpose, right? And when I can bring my purpose to the team, it gives other people permission to follow their dreams and to find their purpose. And I found that people who are inspired by their own purpose and then share that with teams, 
ultimately outperform all the worker bees any day. That was excellent. All right. Last question. What is one book that you would recommend to other sales leaders? Oh, not mine, right? Just kidding. The book that I refer most often to is Simon Sinek's Start With Why. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has a TED Talk. He has a um, New York Times bestseller. He's many New York Times bestsellers, but Start With Why was one of them. He's popularized this concept of why, and here's why I believe it's important to sellers. <clears throat> In it, Sinek talks about the distinction between what separates the best leaders those who inspire us over and over and over, and the best companies, those that continue to innovate from everybody else. And in it, he popularized a concept called the golden circle principle. And he's very clear. He, didn't, he did not invent this concept. He just popularized it. And he says, what separates those that innovate over and over from everybody else? And it's that they all communicate the exact same way, and it's the opposite of everybody else. So if you go and you look at this golden circle principle, there are three concentric circles, right? The inside is why, the next one is uh, how, and then the outside is what. And if you think about it this way, every organization on the planet, people on the outside know what they do. It's their jobs. As you go higher in an organization, some people know how things get done, right? Product differentiation. What makes a company special? Why should we care about you? Very few people, when they communicate, actually ever get to the why. The best leaders do. And most people, most sellers communicate from the outside in. They go what is easiest to understand to what is more complicated. The what is the facts, the features, the bells and the whistles. Maybe they get to the how, the product differentiation. They say, you want to work with me? You want to buy something? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not very inspiring. So the best sellers, I believe, the best leaders, those that inspire us to action speak, as Cynic says, from the inside out. They start with their why. If I were to tell you, hey, I'm a public speaker, I like to motivate people, I'll get on stage, we'll go on Zoom, like, you want to hire me? Not very inspiring. When I look at you and I slow down and I say, I believe in human potential, that every single one of us is capable of greatness beyond our wildest dreams. What happens in life and career over time? We get so mired down in jobs and responsibilities, so much so we don't even remember how to dream. I help people unleash their potential and awaken their dreams. Can I help you? Ideally, you likely felt something a little viscerally different. And Cynic has taught me, and this is why I represent or recommend this book so often, is when you start with the why, you're speaking to the part of the brain that controls buying behavior, decision-making. But here's the challenge. That part of the brain has no ability to process the facts and figures and language. It's all about the feelings. So when I speak about my why, and you can feel that, it connects to the part of your brain that drives loyalty, that drives decisions. However, that part of the brain then needs to rationalize it with facts and features and benefits, which is the outside part of the brain. So it's not just a model I think that is nice to have. To me, it is a game changer in sales because it teaches us to orientate our language to the part of the brain that inspires action. And it's very different in services, right? Most sellers are going to talk about the facts and the features. And when I push them, Let's say we're doing a deal prep review or we're looking at what are the win themes. I say, why would this customer want to buy from us? And then you often hear, well, they have a problem with this and they need to end user support and they need better experience. All of that is great. But what is the why? So when we orientate, when you believe what I believe, now we have an opportunity to work together. And so if the concept resonates, right? He's got the 10-minute TED Talk. 
I have all of my teams watch the TED Talk, read the book, do the work, not just on the why for their deals, but on themselves. Because when you are a seller who shows up inspired and you know your why, and you can proliferate that through sales conversations, well, now you've broken down the barrier between two people and your customers will come back to you over and over and over again. You know, so one of my hobbies is I'm a triathlete. I was a chunky kid, never played a sports, um, early 30s, made one of those lists of things in life you always wanted to do, but had never done. There was champagne involved, if I'm being honest. Um, and when I woke up the next day, number three said, be an athlete. And I thought to myself, goodness gravy, if I'm 32 years old and I'm still ha- like harboring childhood dreams of wanting to be an athlete, I got to do something about that. Now, mind you, I'd been fit and gone to the gym, but athlete was in there. So I went and hired a run coach and joined a run club. And I, I remember saying to her like, hey, I'd love to run a 5K. That'd be really cool, right? Three, three point whatever miles. I've never run more than a mile on treadmill. And she looked at me and she jokingly said, hey, I believe there's an athlete inside every one of us and we're training for a half marathon. I'll be in your life as much as you want or as little. Well, so, right? She used that believe language. She spoke to the little five-year-olds. We used to put her cha- nose to the chain link fence and try, you know, watching the girls play soccer, but never, never made the cut. And so... 5K turned to half marathon, turned into triathlon. And and in less than 18 months, I did a full Ironman. Um, And I only share that because that to me is what happens when you connect with those deep intrinsic beliefs and you start to practice bringing them to life. Now, do I think everyone needs to go to an Ironman? No, but I want people to give themselves permission to cultivate and explore their internal desires and then practice bringing those desires to life in their job, in their customer conversations and in their life. Because amazing things start to happen when we stop looking externally and we start looking internally and bringing those things to life. And I can remember certain folks, right, or naysayers saying, oh my God, she's training for triathlon. She's, her deals, are, if she's got more time on her plate, she needs more deals. No, if you're ma- meeting your target and you're doing triathlon, it's pretty amazing. And what happened was suddenly all the prospects and customers that had aspirations of a 5K, a run, an Ironman, we started bonding. Over the next couple of years, I've had more customers go do their first Ironman than I ever imagined because they're like, hey, if she can do it, I can do it, right? And then I would share the training plans for my coach. And I'll never forget, you know, I had a, a, a client at the time, customer, he was training for his first full Ironman, didn't have a coach. He's like, I can do this on my own. You know, my wife's a runner. I used to be a cyclist. We got this. And I remember thinking the week before his race, he has got to be freaking out because I don't care how trained you are. Your first 130-something mile race on your own, you in the swim, 2.1 miles, 131-mile bike, and then a full marathon, you are scared, right? And so I thought about it. And one of the best things my coach had ever done for me was she would write me these amazing letters, these rally calls. You've done the work, right? Trust your body, all of this stuff. And so I emailed, I, I texted him. And I said, hey, I want to send you a personal email. What's your you know, personal email address? And so I wrote him this letter. Um, he called me a few days later uh, crying and said, just so you know, I read that letter out loud to my family and I'm going to keep it forever. That's the power of connecting to your why with your customer's why and together, right? Everybody rises. Oh, fantastic recommendation. And probably the best one that I've had in the sense of, uh, I've done about 40 episodes of this podcast and all of them are like, I wonder if, I wonder if, uh, how many people go, go and read the book recommendation 
uh, well, the good news is, is that the uh, the YouTube video, which I've watched a few times, is a perfect condensed version of the book. So um, yes. there's no excuses this time. Um, 100%. Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for your time. Um, last thing, for, for everyone listening, if they have any questions, they, well, they, they need a personal letter before they do their next Iron Man or anything along those lines, <laughs> <laughs> where can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn is usually the easiest. I do have a website, jamieconsulman.com. Um, but LinkedIn is usually the fastest, right? I think we're all on there. So just, yeah, message me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. We'll include the links down in the show notes. Amazing. Thank you again, Jamie. Thank you again to everyone that's listened to this episode. We'll catch you all next week. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.